this morning. It is my distinct pleasure to be able to walk us through this passage of Scripture. Um, you know as well as I do that there is a particular verse in here that is it's a pretty popular verse, and we're going to talk about that today, and it's going to be fun. It's going to be real fun. Uh, but I want to sort of start this off by saying, or asking even maybe the question, have you ever encouraged somebody with a Bible verse only later to find out it's not really in the Bible? You're probably not going to raise your hand on that one, are you? Right? Oh, that's me. I do that all the time. Um, have you ever been encouraged, somebody shared a Bible verse with you that you realized later was not in the Bible? Anybody? Right? Uh, well-meaning, right? But sometimes I think we get confused. There was one when I was a kid um, in, in the church environment, uh, you know, in the, the culture that I grew up in, was uh, God helps those who help themselves. And I was like, it seems contrary to, you know, Jesus dying on the cross, but whatever, um, because it seems like that's, that's not what's going on there. Uh, but that was, that was something that I was told when I was a kid. God helps those who helps them, help themselves. And I thought it was in the Bible. Indeed, is not in the Bible, right? That was like Benjamin Franklin, right? But uh, that's so, that may sound to us to be like pithy wisdom from Scripture, but that's not what it is. Um, or, or even this one, maybe. They even make plaques out of this one, and you can like walk around in stores, and you'll see this uh, maybe, maybe it's on a plaque in Hobby Lobby or something, but like, this too shall pass, right? Again, not in Scripture. And some people think it's like, it's a verse somewhere in there, but it's not. Not in Scripture. Uh, and I want to share with you the origin of that particular statement. It comes from a story. Uh, it's, it's an Eastern story of a king who asks wise men to create a ring that will make him happy when he is sad, and so they etch uh, the Persian words, this too shall pass, with the effect that it will make him happy in times of sadness. However, though, adversely, it also has the curse of reminding him that when he's happy, this too shall pass. Right. So that, that tale, we take that um, and apply it directly to when things are bad, this too shall pass. But that knife kind of cuts both ways for that statement, right? Like, that's, that's what happens. And this is, this is the, the entirety of the curse of us seeking our own contentment is that, is that we, we want to, to make sure that we are able to navigate um, situations that are hard with the idea that this is not going to last forever, and I'm, it's just a season, and I'm coming into a season of blessing, and everything that I've endured is going to make sense because the next season is going to be so much better, Right? This is the mindset that we adopt, and we, we sort of use these statements to, to get us through. But that's the curse of trying to seek contentment, right? Is that if we, if we give ourselves that this too shall pass in, in times that are hard, then what's to keep us from saying the same thing when, when things are good, right? This too shall pass. Many times we ground our contentment in sources that will not endure or won't sustain us. That, that king that wanted to be happy, he wanted to be reminded, right, that this is only, this is only temporary, but it wasn't always providing him contentment. There was still a, a discontent. And so as we come to this passage of Scripture, this is what Paul is going to talk to us about, or talk to the, the Philippians about, first of all, and then talk to us about through, through the Holy Spirit, is uh, the idea of true contentment or true satisfaction. Where does that come from? How should that look for us as, as Christians? And so that's, that's where we're at today. 
First of all, we're going to say that, that true contentment does not depend on other people. It doesn't depend on other people. Look at verse 10. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Now, Paul is, uh, this, this letter that he's writing, what he's doing at the end here is he's, he's getting kind of ready to sign off. He's signing off and he's reminding them originally why he wrote the letter to talk to them about partnership for the advancement of the gospel. That's what's happening. So he's reminding them he did that. But interestingly enough, what he's saying here is like, you weren't always able to help me, right? You've revived your concern for me. You were concerned, but you had no opportunity, which is another way of saying like, you were for me, but you didn't, you weren't always able to help me. You weren't always able to contact me, whether or not it's like by way of encouragement or by way of finances, there was an intent there, but they weren't always able to follow through with that, right? But Paul is, he's rejoicing, right? I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that you've revived your concern for me. You were concerned, you had no opportunity. He's thankful for their partnership in the gospel, but he also acknowledges that they weren't always able to help, right? Concerned, but no opportunity. But he doesn't, he doesn't throw shade at them. Like, in fact, later on in this passage, in the next passage that we'll be going through, uh, Paul is, is rejoicing. He's thankful for what they've done. He, even though they weren't always able to help him or even though they didn't always have his back, you know, 100%, he was still very thankful. He was still able to rejoice because his contentment was not wrapped up in their performance, right, or their ability to contribute to him. And in that, what we see is like true contentment is not responsible, you know, it's not, it's not responsible to whether or not other people respond to you. We know that they weren't always able to help because when we see Epaphroditus mentioned earlier, uh, the statement that Paul uses is that he had to complete what was lacking in their service, which means they were lacking in their service. But again, Paul's not throwing shade at them. Now that they were able to help, Paul rejoices greatly that they were concerned with his well-being and ministry. He was thankful for their concern both when they weren't able to help and when they were able to help, but his, his attitude, his mindset didn't fluctuate based on whether or not they were coming through. And that's great. That's a good lesson for a lot of us to learn because some of us, we're, we're like twisted up right now because somebody hasn't done something that we think they should have done and we're really irritated with that person and it's making our lives miserable, miserable right? So it might be a marriage in which even, even sitting in it, and let's, I mean, this is one of the things, if you grow up, if you grow up and your parents went to church, everybody was in that car at some point when your parents were fighting, and as soon as you pull into the parking lot, they turn around to the kids, and they're like, nobody says anything, and everybody goes in and pretends like there wasn't like this massive fight before church. Yes, right? And then you just got to pretend that everything's great that day when it's not. But so I know that there might even be married couples in here this morning that you're sitting there and you're really irritated with the person sitting next to you and you just feel like they ruined your whole day. Okay, number, so right now, let me just tell you, get over it. Jesus is bigger than that right now, okay? Um, but, but the reality is that happens way too many times where we, we feel like other people are responsible for our satisfaction or contentment. Marriage is one of those main areas, but it can also be parents and kids, right? It, it can be friendships. It can be work relationships. It, it can be ministry partnerships where we feel like life would be better if they just get their act together, right? And, and you're, you, 
you're constantly dismayed by how other people are not supportive of you or not reacting to you the way that you feel. Paul was able to let that go because his satisfaction wasn't in whether or not they were able to help. He could still say, I know you guys are concerned. You maybe dropped the ball a couple of times, but I'm not going to hold that against you. Why? Because you're not responsible for my satisfaction. That's, the, that's not riding on you. Paul's success in ministry or satisfaction in life wasn't lost if they weren't able to contribute. A common mistake is to put your trust in people instead of God. That's, there are two types of people in the world, two types. You either put your trust in people or you put your trust in God. And I know that because Jeremiah 17, right? That's, that's what's laid out there. We don't, you know, we are ones who sh- we shouldn't put our trust in people because they're going to, people are going to let us down, right? They will. And you're going to let somebody around you down. But we don't put our trust in people. We put our trust in, in God. Paul excused their lack of help regardless of whether or not it was valid. And again, that's, for some of us, that's the primary lesson that we may even need to take away from this passage of Scripture is other people are not responsible for your contentment. Because only Jesus, only Jesus can fill that, right? He's the only one. He's the only one who will never let you down. He's the only one who will always come through with his promises. He's the only one who can satisfy. Number two, not only is it not dependent on other people, number two, it's not dependent on the situation. Verse 11. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be what? Content. Whatever situation I am to be content. See, the Philippians had been unable to keep constant contact or support going to Paul. This is what he was talking about. And because of this, Paul wasn't counting on their involvement to accomplish God's mission, right? It would have been silly because they weren't always able to. So Paul, in the situation that he's in, even as he's writing this letter, where is he? You guys remember where he is? He's in jail. He's imprisoned, right? So obviously, he's not in a great situation. It's not like he's sitting at a Starbucks writing. He wrote this letter like sipping a latte. That's not what he's doing. He's, he's writing from a bad situation. But he wasn't disturbed or uneasy because they weren't able to help him because this wasn't the first situation in which Paul experienced a struggle. 2 Corinthians. Turn there, please. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Best resume in all of Scripture. We'll go verse 21. Start in verse 21. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 21. Paul's going to let us know what life has been like for him. Because of Christ, really. To my shame, I must say we were too weak for that, but whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I'm speaking as a fool. I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. That's funny. I'm talking like a madman. That's a great, I love that. I'm talking like a madman. I can say that sometimes. With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death. Who wants to hang out with Paul? Not me either. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned, uh, with rocks. Okay, just in case you don't. Some of you guys are like, oh, no, not Paul. Three times I was shipwrecked. 
A night and a day I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from, this is make a great metal song, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure of me on my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to fall and I am not indignant? If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. Paul very, very clearly, very clearly was not a newbie at bad situations right? He was experienced in bad situations. And that's why he can confidently say, I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Why? Because whining about your situation will not change it. That's, that's one thing. That's just, that's just the, the base level kind of logic is like being mad at it is not going to change it. This, these are things that happened to Paul as a result of his commitment to Jesus Christ, right? This wasn't the first situation in which he was experiencing a struggle. But it, it does remind us, though, that, like, I, I want you to understand what he says. I have learned, I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Why does he give that list in, in the second letter to the Corinthians? Because that's how he learned contentedness. That's how he learned satisfaction in Christ. Because contentment is not our natural state as human beings. Agreed? It's not. You know how I know that? Day after Christmas. Day after Christmas. You would think at Christmas every year that the day after Christmas we would be like, we're not going anywhere, man. We're just going to sit here and enjoy all the wonderful things God's given us. We have family and we have presents and we have, you know, we've just been able to have maybe the day off or whatever. Like, we're just going to enjoy this. But you know what we do? We go shopping. Shopping. The day after everybody's gotten this massive stack of presents, we're like, I don't know what to do now, man. I just feel empty. Let's go shopping. And you know what a lot of people shop for? Christmas decorations for the next year. Now, does anybody, like, if, if, this, if that's your thing, I don't want to offend you, but I just think that's a, little, that's a little too intense for me, right? Like, what do you guys want to do the day after Christmas? Did you hear that all the Christmas decorations are 70% off now so we can stock up for next Christmas? Like, just enjoy Christmas. Right? Just enjoy. Bask in the afterglow of what just happened, but we don't do that because we are not content. We're not content. It's why when you get that new car, parents, you're like, nobody, nobody touch it. Mats go in first. All weather mats go in first. Seat covers go on, no drinks in the car, no trash. Even though your last car had trash, all, you don't get in my car. If you have mud on your boots, you take your boots off before you get in the car, you clank them together till every last, or else you're riding in the trunk. But don't get the trunk dirty either. Let's, you know what, let's just strap you. Better yet, I'm going to call you an Uber. I'll meet you at home. Don't get in my car. When spring comes and everything starts to dry out, then you can get in my car with flip-flops. Take your flip-flops off. That's what we do though, right? You get, the, it's so weird, but we're never content because then you get the thing and you're afraid you're going to lose the thing that you have. It's, it's a weird cycle. Contentment is not our natural state. We're not prone to receive a blessing and then go, this is just more than I deserve, right? We're not prone to do that. We're prone to just want more. I want more and more. It's not enough. That's why we have to learn it. 
And that's why we have to learn it, quite honestly, through situational extremes a lot of times. That's how God teaches us. Even when we get what we'd hoped for, there's always something missing, right? Paul's conversion was, was radical enough, though, that he, he received, all he received in life for, for him was directly tied to God's grace. I mean, the, the, the reality that Paul was like murdering Christians and putting them in jail and stuff, and then God saw fit to show him his beauty, the beauty of Christ, that Christ radically saves him, and then everything was just tied to grace after that for Paul because he knew what he was and then what Christ had made him, right? So there was that reminder there. And Paul references, though, both abundance and need as the spectrum of life experiences in the next verse. He says, through abundance or through need, I've learned, through riches and through poverty, I've learned these things. And one of the things we have to deal with is that there's a danger and an opportunity in every type of circumstance. There's a danger and an opportunity in every type of circumstance. So abundance, let's, let's take abundance for example. Abundance presents the danger of relying too much on material possessions. So if, you, if you're in a season of abundance, then the danger there is that you're relying too much on, on material possessions. But there's also the opportunity of stewarding those blessings with great joy, right? So there's, there's both. There's a, there's a danger, but there's also an opportunity. Gordon Fee says this about abundance. He says, abundance simply shifts one, one's focus from getting things to keeping the things that one has. If you've ever bought a, a new house and you were so excited to get into that new house and you were just sure, I'm not going to ask God for anything else, right? I'm not asking God for anything else. And then a month in, you're like, why is there suddenly water shooting through my walls? Right? I, what? what is this? This was all supposed to be like done. It's like done. Everything maintains itself. I never have to do anything. It all maintains, right? You, you understand that when, when you get a season of abundance, then what you're always trying to do is, is maintain what you have and hold on to it. Because if that stuff gets taken away or altered or lost, then, then you're, you're in a world of hurt, right? And that's one of the biggest dangers in the season of abundance. But Need presents the danger of becoming self-righteous, like smugly self-righteous, and the opportunity of trusting in God and accepting blessings from others. So there's a, a danger of becoming that person who's like, yeah, rich people are the problem. People who have money are the problem because money is the root of all evil. No, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that the love of money is the root of all evil. And we are in a culture where a lot of people in culture are like, rich people are bad. Can I be honest with you? I've known believers. I've, I've encountered believers. Uh, some of the most generous Christians I've known have a lot of money and have done more for people in need and, church, and churches and, and missions work. And some of the, some of the most self-righteous poorer people I know are the stingiest, like, with, with their goods. Do you, do you understand? That's, this is not about, like, abundance is, is great and poverty is terrible, or abundance is terrible and poverty is great. This, this is about Paul saying, I can handle either situation, because it's not the situation that brings me contentment. So if God wants to give me a bunch of stuff, I can live that life. 
for his glory. But if God wants to take everything away from me, I can live that life for his glory. That's what Paul's getting at, right? And remember, when, when, when Paul is writing this letter, while in prison, he's making a large part of the theme about joy, right? So it's not like a begrudging, like, whatever situation I'm in, I guess I can get through it. He's, he's talking about the advancement of the gospel and the sufficiency of Jesus Christ in any situation that we find ourselves in. And that's, that's a lesson that we all need to learn, right? That it's not, one is not better than the other. Having abundance is not better than, than having poverty or, or living simply. And living simply is not better than having abundance, because in either situation, you can be terribly sinful or extremely satisfied in Christ, right? Both are true. But Paul had learned, again, Paul had learned and had been freed from concerns that many of us are paralyzed by. Because situationally, what happens, even if it's not the material goods that you want, a lot of that gets tied into, like, what do people think of me, right? What are people going to think of me? Um, and, and I want to say some, one thing before I move on about need. The opportunity of trusting God and accepting blessings from others, honestly, one big issue is if you're in need, there is, there is a, this latent evil sinfulness in not being honest about, about your life situation with your brothers and sisters in Christ and not letting other people help you. That's sinful. If you have need and you think that it's more honoring to God to be quiet because you shouldn't let other people help you, that's sin. It's sin. It's not honorable to, like, pull yourself up by your bootstraps and just get through it because God has given you brothers and sisters in Christ to share life with, right? And so it's, it's, it's God's command that we would be that for one another. And so there's, there's a sinfulness in saying, like, I'm going to get through this on my own. I don't need other people's help. Yes, you do. In certain seasons, you do. And so, like, repent and ask for help. Ask for help. But Paul had been freed from some of these concerns. Like, to him, his reputation wasn't important. In chapter 1, verses 15 through 18, he's like, man, I don't care if these guys are doing it to keep me in prison or to make my life harder. Christ is preached, man. Glory to God. He didn't care about his reputation. His concern was the gospel. In chapter 3, verses 4 through 12, he, his status was not important, right? Like all these things that I could brag about, I'm not going to brag about it. They're all rubbish. Why? Because his security was in Christ. And in this passage, his situation wasn't important because his hope was in God. His hope wasn't in his situation. Situations change. Contentment has to be learned because it doesn't come naturally and our flesh is fighting against true contentment. We are never satisfied and so God in His grace has to teach us that happiness is not the solution to our problems, right? Our, our, our situation being a happier situation is not the solution to our problems. And we live in a culture in which we as adults are conditioning the emerging generation to prioritize happiness. Do you know that? We, we are teaching our kids to prioritize happiness. How do you feel about that? I understand that made you sad. What did they say about you? They shouldn't have said that. Your teacher gave you what grade? Let me call that teacher and let them know how they must not know how smart you are because there's no way you would have failed that test. Oh, your coach won't, won't start you? Let me, let, me, uh, let me have a word with them. We live, in a, we live in a culture now where people are going out of college and getting jobs, and if, they don't, if their interview doesn't go well, their parents are calling the employer to let them know how much they've screwed up. That's, that's legit. That's a thing now. 
right? Because we've conditioned ourselves and our kids to prioritize happiness. What makes you happy? What does your heart say? But that won't bring contentment because that's always going to change. Unless, unless your heart says, I just want more of Jesus. I just want more of Jesus. And Jesus is enough. But that has to be learned. It doesn't come naturally. You know, Job, Job finally said, at the end of Job, you read, look at the whole thing. Like God allows everything to be taken away from him. And that whole book is a learning opportunity for Job. What did he need to learn? What he needed to learn was he doesn't need to know why those things are happening. I had heard of you by hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. What Job discovered in the midst of his situation was the presence of God answers those questions. Right? Because even if you knew why you were in the situation that you were in, you would always have another why. Why now? Why like this? Why is it this intense? But when you have the presence of God, the answer to the question, why, is really not that important anymore, right? Because God answers it with a who. With a who. And the gospel advances in every situation. Do you know that? Every situation. There's no situation in which Christ doesn't exert his power over to advance the gospel. None. You think of the worst situation in the world, Christ can and does exert his power over that situation to make his supremacy known and to show people his love. We have that promise in Scripture. There's nothing that happens that's outside of God's control for the sake of making Christ known. And we would find more joy if that's how we looked at every situation because that's what Paul did. What was important to Paul was to know Christ. That's what we saw earlier in Philippians, right? To know Christ experientially. And that's possible in every situation. And in fact, that's, that's only possible when God takes us through those situations. The phrase that Paul uses, to be content, is more accurately translated as, as sufficient, being sufficient, okay? I've learned to be content, or I've learned to be sufficient, but, but, this isn't referencing a self-sufficiency, but finding himself to be sufficient in Christ. It's a Christ sufficiency, and that's important because the third thing about true contentment is it doesn't depend on self-sufficiency. Because the other thing that we do, even if we get to the point where we realize that, that situations don't bring contentment, then one of the things that we will do and we think that it's noble is we will convince ourselves to gut out this situation because we can't control it, and the only thing I can control is my attitude. Right? We even tell our kids that. You control, you're in charge of your attitude. So when you encounter something bad, you just got to think yourself through it and remind yourself, this too shall pass. Right? But that's, that's still, that's, that's pagan thinking. 
We know this because what Paul's doing here, when he, when he talks about in the next verse, look at verse 12, I know how to be brought low, I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. When he references self-sufficiency and then references the secret, he's directly talking in the Greek language that the Stoics at the time used. And let me tell you two things about the Stoics. They were a, a, a sect of society, it was a philosophical group of people who had an idea about how the world went and how you should live in light of this universe that's just spinning out of control. Well, not out of control, but is, is spinning and just keeps going. Two things. Number one, we can't control situations, but we can control our happiness. You're like, what's wrong with that? Hold on. Number two, embrace what the universe gives and don't let it bother you, right? Hey, this is just what happens, man. Just suck it up and you just Again, like pull yourself up by your bootstraps, you get it going. Change your thinking. You've changed your thinking, you change your response to the situation. But again, the, the root cause or the root source of our sufficiency in that mindset becomes us. Right? And then what happens, what happens when we fail in that is we start heaping shame on ourselves because obviously I'm not mentally strong enough to endure this situation. I'm weak, I'm stupid. I'm not as godly as this person is because I can't make myself do better. That is a lie from hell that you can make your situation better. And it also assumes that God wants us to get out from under the suffering. And that is not what God wants, by the way. That's rooted in the mindset that we live in seasons of life and this season is a valley, but the next season is going to be a mountain. But indifference to situations is not the same thing as joy. It's not the same. You being like, well, this is just what I've been given, that's not the same thing as, find, as, as finding satisfaction in, in the true source of contentment. See, Paul had encountered external situations, but in a lot of cases, the internal ones are hardest to overcome, right? Right? Like our own responses, battling with our mind. Why do I feel this way? Some people who, who experience things like depression, right, or, or a melancholy like Charles Spurgeon did even, and you may experience that for seasons and seasons and seasons, or can we even talk about, is it possible for something who is, somebody who is extremely mentally disabled to find satisfaction in Christ, or are they not worth it simply because they can't conjure up the mental powers to be able to deal with what's going on with them? You understand what I'm saying? Like, when we say things like that, what we're assuming is that God doesn't have the same care and offer the same satisfaction to people who don't have the same level of knowledge or intellectual capacity as we do. And that's not true. And in, in, our, in our rush to, to positive think our way into better situations, we end up doing terrible theology because we're looking to ourselves to change our situation. Still in the way that we mentally handle it, right? What if the situation you're assuming will end is actually going to continue or get harder? What if the rest of your life, in some way, is just one long valley? Now, you can try to change your attitude, but I'm telling you, you're going to wake up one morning and you're going to say, I can't, I can't do this anymore. Because your ability to positive think your way into change is going to fail. 
but your Savior's ability to sustain you will never fail. Some of you guys are like, I don't even know what that's like. Then try him. Try it. Lean into him. Don't assume that he's waiting for you to do the work. It's like, come on, if you'll just do better, I'll meet you there. That's, that's not how any of this works. You know, some of us who have strong views of God's sovereignty, if you want to know more about what that means, I'll talk to you later, but some of us who have really strong views of God's sovereignty and in, in how in control God is, but we actually use his sovereignty as a way to detach ourselves from feeling the weight of our situation. So if you're, if you're in here and you're like, you respond to situations by being like, well, you know, God's going to do what he's going to do, so we just, you know, this is what we have. I don't think that's good either. I think God wants us to, like Paul did, feel the weight of the situation, like feel the, the gravity of the fact that this is terrible. This does hurt. And in the pain, we're driven to the comfort that only Christ can give to us. And sometimes we just, we just want to get away from the pain so much we miss the, the comfort that God offers to us. One of God's gifts to Paul was a thorn in the flesh to keep him from being conceited. In 2 Corinthians, right? Chapter 12, Paul said, a, a messenger of Satan was sent to me, a thorn in the flesh. Three times I asked for it to be removed from me. Verse 9 Paul says, but he said to me, he, the Lord said to me, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Your ability to, to, to grit your teeth and gut it out and get through this will not provide contentment or satisfaction for you. It's doomed to fail. It's doomed to fail. The secret to contentment is not a detachment from suffering or even from abundance, right? It's not a detachment, it's not a detachment from those things, but an embracing of whatever will conform us to Christ-likeness because that's exactly what God wants for us. So whatever situation God takes us through, if it's abundance, it's for the purpose of conforming us to Christ. If it's need, it's for the purpose of conforming us to Christ. Do you understand that? He's not out of control. And he's not doing it because he's mad at us. He's doing it because he loves us and he promises that he will complete the good work that he began in us, right? And that's painful. It's painful, but it's good. Because it takes away everything that doesn't ultimately satisfy us. And it leads us back to the one thing that does. Jesus. Look at verse 13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, I hope you, I hope you know from reading the, the first couple verses, the first few verses, this verse doesn't mean what a lot of people think it means now, right? Much to Steph Curry's chagrin, this has nothing to do with three-pointers. And I think this year we can all agree that Philippians 4.13 4, 4, is not what helped the Warriors. If you follow NBA, you know what I'm talking about, right? 
Like, sports teams don't win because Jesus was like, seek it, dunk it, yeah! That's not how that works. Holy smokes, man. I don't know why we think... <laughs> it's, you, you're not going to bench press 475 pounds because you can do all things through Christ, right? That's not what that's about. That's not about, like, I'm going to change my situation. I'm going to rise above my situation because I can do all things. That's not what he's talking about. What Paul's definitively talking about in context is I can do ministry in whatever situation God gives me because I can do all things through Christ. Because the goal of it is to proclaim Christ, and so he can do all things because Christ is the goal. If we're trying to use Jesus as a jumping-off point for making our lives better, God's not going to honor that. right? Jesus is not a means to an end. This is what Paul's saying. Jesus is the end. Jesus is the end. He is the satisfaction. It's not a statement about getting a green light from God to do anything you can imagine. Right? But this is even the wrong place to put the emphasis. We say, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength, but that's not where the emphasis is. The, the things are just a means to the actual secret. The secret that God won't allow His people to be satisfied with what won't actually satisfy them. That's the whole, one of the themes of Scripture is God will not allow His people to be happy in their sin, to be happy in their wandering from Him. They will either have their eyes firmly fixed on Him and have joy, or they will have their eyes turned from Him and experience great sorrow. He promises that's what He's going to do. The whole new covenant promises in the old, in the old covenant, the Old Testament are this, I'm going to make you focus on me. That's what I do for you because that's what's good for you. It would be like us continually giving our kids candy and television, like candy and Netflix, candy and Netflix, and being like, I hope they'll learn to appreciate things that are good for them because of this. They won't! God gives us what we need, even if it's not what we want. Of Him who strengthens me. This thought is better said, continually empowers continually empowers. I can do all things through Him who continually empowers me, which is the other side of the coin in John 15, 5 that Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. You can do nothing apart from me. Paul is Christ-dependent. Listen, circumstances are too hard for you. I'm, I'm going to let some of you down gently circumstances that you're going to face are definitely too hard for you, and they're too hard for me, but they're not too hard for Jesus. Your sin is too overwhelming for you. It is, but it's not for Jesus. The true secret of contentment is seeing all things as an opportunity to, to know Christ more, right? The secret of contentment is seeing all things that you encounter as an opportunity to know Christ more and be deeper in relationship with Him. Christ says something in, in Luke chapter 6, verse 21, Sermon on the Mount. He says that blessed are those who hunger, for, for they will be satisfied. Hunger for something deeper than what the world can offer is a blessing because the promise for those people is that they will find what they're looking for in Jesus so let me give you three things by way of response just very quickly. Number one, remember your salvation. Like, be grounded in that. If you're a believer in here, that's, that, 
Fix your eyes on the fact that you, you were hopelessly lost without Christ. And in his grace and his mercy, he sought you out, not because you knew the right things to say or the right things to ask or because you did enough to please him, but simply because his love is so great that he sets it on people who rejected him. Paul remembers that. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 16. It's, a di- it's this diatribe on like, here's what I was, but here's what I am because of Christ. Paul knew that. Number two, enter into the mess of other people. 2 Corinthians 8, 9. Christ became poor, right? Christ became poor for us. And, and the, the idea there is that sometimes we just spend so much time looking at our situation and trying to for, Philippians 4, 13 out of our situation, we don't realize there's people around us going through much worse things than we are. And instead of focusing on what it is that we don't like, we could be leaning into sharing life with those people. And you have no idea how deeply you will meet Christ when you enter into the mess of other people. Third thing is this. Trust that Jesus' presence is constant and your situation, either good or bad, is not. Look at Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13, 5. Keep your life free from love of money, And be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Why are we able to look past our situations? Not because we think that they're going to be over. Not because we got ourselves into it, but because Jesus has promised us, I will never leave you or forsake you. Some some of y'all need to go home and just read that over and over and over because at some point you've assumed that God has just left you out there. And he's just watching you flounder. And he's not going to help you because he wants you to help yourself. Keep yourself free from being tied to your situation because Jesus has promised that he's never going to leave you. He's never going to forsake you. I had a call with a guy this week that I respect, and we were talking about we were talking about life, and got into sharing some stories about things uh, when when times were hard, right, for us and stuff. And one of the things that he said to me is that it's good for us to be low because the lower we get. Jesus goes lower. He meets us there. Right? That's, and that's what makes him amazing as a savior. Is he doesn't stand over us and be like, you've got to get right and get to my level. He comes down below our level. He gave his life on a cross, on a criminal's death so that we could feast with him in eternity on the blessings that he's given us. Salvation. And one day glorification, right? He will never leave you or forsake you. Your satisfaction should be always dependent on the only source of true satisfaction. Christ. Christ. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for 
your grace and your mercy shown towards us sinful people. I'm so thankful, Lord, that you don't define us by our inability to change any situation. Like we, we are so inept at so many things. But Lord, your, your love for us is so great. You clothed yourself in flesh. You did what we could not do. And you died the death that we should have died. Not just so that we might be freed from our sins, but so that we might be reunited to relationship with you and be able to drink from the fountain of your mercy forever. God, we glorify you. Change our hearts this morning. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.